You are listening to the Sermons Podcast of First Baptist Church, Mount Washington. Well, it is very good to be with you, and I bring you special greetings from a guy you may know. His name is Paul Chitwood. Um, he is my boss, and uh, I was just meeting with him a couple of days ago. He said to bring you greetings, and uh, just to let you know that he still thinks of you and, and, and misses you. Uh, it is also good to be back in the uh, uh, Ohio Valley area. Uh, my wife and I spent a couple of years here. I uh, taught full-time at Southern Seminary, still teach there part-time, and uh, this, this place means a lot to us. I'd like to ask you to turn in your Bibles, if you would, to a very familiar passage, Matthew 28. We're going to be looking at verses 16 to 20. This is one of those passages that is so familiar that I think often people just sort of their eyes glaze over. Uh, we sort of skip right over it and we don't pause to think about exactly what it says. So whenever I get the chance to meet with a group of believers who are serious about missions, I like to, to camp on this passage and, and dig out from it the things that Jesus is saying to us here. So Matthew 28, beginning with verse 16. Now, the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray one more time. Father, um, apart from you, we can do nothing. And if your Holy Spirit does not come to be our teacher, then, then we will just spend this time listening to words and then walk away. I pray that your Spirit would come, that you would not only give us understanding to know what Jesus meant when he said these words, but also that you would use these words to change us, that you would transform our hearts and, and our affections and our wills to the point that we obey. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Missions is not a very popular subject today. Uh, I remember when that was different. I'm old enough to remember reading and praying the Bible in public school. I am old enough to remember being assigned to do a report on a missionary. It was like in third grade, um, and this was in public school. Um, those days are long, long gone. And today, our society regards missions as an, an, a classic example of incredible arrogance. I mean, how dare we presume to think that we have a message that everybody else needs to hear? And even worse, how dare we think that people have to believe what we believe in order to be made right with God if there even is a God? So, in the secular world, missions is unpopular. This becomes very clear when you look at the way that missionaries or missions, or preachers for that matter, are depicted in much of the secular media and, and films and things like that. Many foreign governments also do not like missions a whole lot. There was a time when missionaries could go pretty much anywhere in the world. Uh, that time actually corresponded to the time when the Western world, A, still thought of itself as Christian, and B, exercised colonial rule over most of the planet. Uh, as colonial rule collapsed in the 50s and 60s, we began to see country after country close its doors to foreign missionaries saying, we don't need you here. But even in the church, I fear that missions is all too often discouraged. You, you hear the same arguments pretty much everywhere. It's so expensive. It's potentially dangerous. 
So my wife and I spent much of our adult lives in Central Asia, and whenever we would go, we would tell people where we were going, they'd say, but isn't it dangerous over there? Like first words out of their mouths. Usually the second words out of their mouths were, well, you're not taking your children, are you? To which I usually, with, with, with tongue-in-cheek, said, no, we were actually thinking about abandoning them. Of course we're taking our children. Um, the point is, they thought, no one in their right mind would go where you're going because it's dangerous over there. And, of course, so often what you, really, what, what you heard was, there's so much need here, why go somewhere else? Now, the real message often in the church was, I don't want my kids taking my grandkids overseas. And as a grandfather, I still can't understand that because I'm really excited about the thought of my kids and grandkids being overseas. But the bottom line is, why do we have the right to engage in missionary work around the world? Society thinks it's a bad idea. Other governments think it's a bad idea. Even many in the church think it's a bad idea. What gives us the right to do that? But there's also a lot of confusion in the church today about what the mission of the church is. What has God left us here to do? What do we even mean when we use the word missions? Uh, For many, anything good we do outside the walls of our church building qualifies as missions. I was in Great Britain once, saw some literature they produced. This is the Baptist Missionary Society, the group that started it all, William Carey's group. And they published this literature that defined missions as love in action, gave examples of things like drug rehabilitation and political activism, and never actually once mentioned Jesus in all of their discussion about what missions was. So generally speaking, when people now use the word missions, there's four things they think about. One is the traditional classic evangelism and church planting. Another that often goes alongside that is doing works of mercy. And so, for example, evangelical missionaries around the world have built hospitals, have established schools, have um, uh, engaged in feeding the hungry, all sorts of things like that that missionaries do. So along with evangelism and church planting, there's often works of mercy. Today, increasingly, you also hear two other things. One of those is the pursuit of justice, and so seeking justice in society and often imposing justice on other societies. And then especially here in America, creating or redeeming culture. So how do we decide? The bottom line here is, how do we know what God means for us to do in missions? And these two questions are critical for us, but they're both, I believe, answered by the text we just read. So let's look at it more closely. Jesus begins his statement by saying, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And this is the authority for missions. It's the universal lordship of Jesus Christ. This is an astonishing claim Jesus is making here. He is the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth. All authority in heaven and on earth is given to him. You know, the theme of Jesus' teaching in the Gospels is the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven as it's phrased in in, in Matthew. And what Jesus is teaching there is that the rule of God is breaking into human history. that, That God is actually stepping onto the scene as the Old Testament prophets had promised and making things right. It's, it's not talking about setting up a country with borders and a flag and an army and stuff like that, but literally it is talking about God himself making things right in this world. And what Jesus is saying now is that he is the king of that kingdom. Jesus is God himself in human flesh who has stepped on to the human scene to set things right. He is that king. 
And that gives us two very important lessons. First of all, we have the right to engage in missions because the highest authority in the universe gave us that right. Once upon a time, I was in the army, and when you're in the military, rank structure matters a lot. And so you know that if a captain gives you one order and a colonel gives you a contradictory order, which one do you do? You do what the colonel says. It doesn't matter what the captain said. You do what the colonel said. And so if a small, puny authority like, I don't know, the government of the United States or the president of China or somebody small like that gives you one order and the king of kings and lord of lords gives you a different one, which one do you follow? Which one outranks the other? Clearly, the word of Jesus outranks every human authority that there is. So our society may say this is a bad idea. Jesus is far more important than our society. Governments may say you can't bring the gospel in. The King of kings and Lord of lords says take it, and therefore we do. And we have every right to do that. But this authority of Jesus' business is a two-edged sword. See, we don't just have the authority to do it, we have an obligation to do it. Because when that colonel gives me that order, I don't get to decide whether I want to or not. I just do it. I'm under his authority. I have to do what he says to do. And we are under a king, not a counselor or an advisor. One of my favorite movies is Chariots of Fire. And there, there, there comes this point where the father of, of one of the main characters, so Eric Little's dad, who is himself a missionary to China, is talking to Eric's unbelieving best friend. And, and I wish I could mimic his Scottish accent. I can't. But he, he says, the kingdom of heaven is not a democracy. And I think all too often we want to impose on God's rule over us that which we rightly claim for our own human government. So here, our government derives its just powers from the consent of the governed. God does not need the consent of anyone. God is king. And so if he tells me to do something, I have an obligation. The Great Commission is not a suggestion. It's not an afterthought. It's a command. So our first question is answered. Our authority from doing missions is nothing less than the universal lordship of Jesus. And that authority goes far beyond just giving us permission. It lays an obligation on us. The missionary task is not an option. It is a command. So, that's why we should do it. But then what is it? Well, Jesus goes on to explain it to us. He says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And in all of this, there is actually one command and then a whole set of other things that help us understand how to fulfill that command. And that one command is to make disciples. Uh, for those of you who can still remember high school um, grammar, uh, there's, there's this part of speech called an imperative. And there's one imperative in this, and that's the imperative to make disciples. And all the other verbs in there give us the parameters in which we do that. So, the command is we're to make disciples. But then that raises the question, what's a disciple? I mean, disciple is not a word we use a lot in common language today. Well, the, the closest analogy would be student. However, it means something kind of different from what we think of as students today. As I mentioned, I, I teach at Southern. I teach a class 
that every student in every degree, degree program has to take. It's called Introduction to Missions. And I know that probably at least three-fourths of the students in there would not be there if they didn't have to take it. And it's always interesting to teach a class to people who really don't want to be there. But because everyone has to take it, I usually teach it in the biggest auditorium on campus. I'll have 70 students easily in, in one of my classes. And the way it works is, is like this, and this is the typical scenario for education today. Students come, they sit, in, they, they sit in the chairs. Those who are really interested will sit up front. Some will sit at the very top of the room thinking somehow that I won't notice when they fall asleep. By the way, the teacher always does, we know. We can even tell when they're actually looking at Facebook instead of taking notes on their computers, we can tell. Um, but I lecture. I ask questions or make, leave it open for them to ask me questions. A few people respond, some at painfully great length, but most simply remain silent and just sit there. They go home, they read the books that I assign them to read, they write the papers I assign them to write, they take the test uh, that I give them at the end of the class, and then they walk away. It is entirely possible for someone to take my class and never once have a single personal interaction with me. It is also entirely possible for them to take my class, learn it just well enough to pass the final, and then forget everything I ever said. You just walk away and it's out of sight, out of mind, and that's it. That's the way modern education works. It's a highly impersonal, transactional thing. Well, that's not the way things work in Jesus' day. Yes, a disciple is a student, but things worked differently back then. Think about it. Um, they had no media of any sort, not even print media, much less electronic media. The only way you could hear what someone had to say was to be with them in person. That was it. And for the most part, you didn't have the sort of informal schools with lecture halls like we do today. Instead, a teacher like Jesus or another rabbi or the Greek philosophers for that matter would have a two-tier system of training. On the one hand, they would, they would travel around from town to town and village to village giving their stock speech. And for Jesus, that's probably more or less the Sermon on the Mount. Everywhere he went, he probably preached something more or less like the Sermon on the Mount. The crowds got that, and that was it. But if you wanted to be a student, you wanted to be a disciple, then you attached yourself to the teacher. You became an up-close and personal kind of follower. You spent time with him. In fact, you were with him 24-7. You heard him teach the same thing over and over again from town to town and village to village until you, had heard, you knew it by heart. And by the way, in, in largely non-literate societies, people's memories are a whole lot better than ours. And people could hear something once and know it by heart. And so if you heard it over and over again, then, then you certainly had it cold. <clears throat> but you also had an advantage over the people who just heard him speak. Because you had a chance to, to follow up, to have deeper conversations about things you were able to ask the kind of questions that you, you don't ask in a large crowd. You also got special teaching that the crowd didn't get, and you got to observe the teacher's life as well as hear the teacher's message. And so it was said in Jesus' day that you could tell what rabbi someone had studied under just by watching them because they had spent so much time with their teacher that they literally came to reflect their teacher. It's like they were conform to the image of their teacher. So they would talk like the teacher taught. They would live like the teacher lived. They would even gesture like the teacher gestured. 
And that's what it means to be a disciple. To make a disciple means that you facilitate someone being with Jesus so much that that person not only knows what Jesus taught, but actually lives like Jesus lived. That comes to remind people around them of who Jesus is. So, you know the, the teacher's message, you reflect the, the teacher's character and way of life, and you embrace the teacher's mission. And that's what we're to do. We are to make those kinds of disciples. Now, the critical components are baptizing and teaching. Baptizing is a mark of the radical nature of discipleship. And it is how, in the Bible, people profess their faith in Jesus. You know, if you think about it, when, when, when we baptize somebody back there, we're actually holding a funeral. We're burying who they used to be. That person's dead and gone. And the person who comes up out of the water, what we are proclaiming to the world is this person has been so transformed by the Holy Spirit, literally brought from death to life, that this is a brand new creature in Christ who is here. Which means that being a disciple is a radical break from all that has gone before. So that's the beginning point. We baptize. But we also teach obedience to everything He commanded. And since Jesus, in effect, endorsed the entire rest of the Bible in what He said, what that means then is you must know and obey everything that scripture has to say that it is a lifelong process of becoming more and more and more like christ as we more and more and more know his word and more and more and more obey it not with a grudging heart but with a joyful heart so that's what we're to do we're to make disciples well this doesn't just mean that we work with people who are already christians and help them to grow in discipleship we are to make disciples and the only way you start being a disciple is by being born again. And so making disciples necessarily involves evangelism. That's how someone becomes a disciple. And making disciples where there aren't any churches already also necessarily means starting churches. And so it's no mistake that when we look at the apostles in the book of Acts, what we see is everywhere they went, yes, they shared the gospel in order to make disciples. They also left behind local churches. Because in the New Testament, the local church is where discipleship actually happens other things that we have access to like like books or conferences or or videos or things like that those are accessories perhaps but it's the local church where each member does his or her part that's where we grow to maturity in jesus according to ephesians chapter 4 so that then means that the task of making disciples ends up encompassing in itself evangelism, disciple-making, and church planting all together. And that's what we need to do in order to do this task that we've been called on to do. And that helps us then understand that's the missionary task. That's what we're supposed to be doing. But the question is, where are we supposed to do it? Are we just supposed to keep doing it where we already are? Well, according to Jesus, no. Because we're to make disciples of all nations, of all the peoples of the earth. Now again, when we talk about a nation or a people group, we're not talking about a modern country. This is not like the United States or India or China or any place like that. Uh, those are fairly modern constructs, and that's not what the Bible means anyway. When the Bible talks about a nation or a people, what they're talking about really is what, in modern terms, we, we label as a people group, an ethnic group that regards themselves as being a distinct unit of people that may or may not 
be all within one country or may or may not include all of a given country. So it's people who are distinguished by language, people who are distinguished by history, people who may be distinguished by religion. Um, just to give you some examples, the country of Afghanistan is the size of the state of Texas, has about 25 million people in it, and there are 50 languages spoken there. 50 languages spoken there. Which means that if you share the gospel in one of those languages, another 49 groups of people don't understand what you said. And that needs to be said in their language, among their people. You also have, have historical things that separate people who may even speak the same language. So, for example, the former country of Yugoslavia has Croats, Serbians, and Bosnians in it. They speak the same language. They are ethnically the same. And pretty much all of them are irreligious, but they are separated from each other because the ancestors of the Serbs were Eastern Orthodox. The ancestors of the Croats were Roman Catholic, and the ancestors of the Bosnians were Muslim. And so they are bitterly separated from each other and will gladly kill each other over religions they no longer practice. Well, that means you plant the gospel among one of those, they're not going to go share it with that other group. They hate them. And those people are there going to listen to them. It is necessary to cross a barrier to get the gospel within that group of people. So when we talk about peoples or nations, we're not talking about the you know couple of hundred people who have seats in the UN. We're talking about instead about 11,000 different distinct groups of peoples on the earth that we've identified who speak different languages, have different backgrounds, who think of themselves as us as opposed to them. So, if you look at an area like my old region of Central Asia, um, there's about 400 different groups of people there, even though there's 13 countries in that area. 400 different language groups who, by and large, keep to themselves. So, if that's what the command is to do, we're to, we're to make disciples among all these people groups, how are we doing? It, it's been about 2,000 years. You would think by now we'd pretty much have the job done, right? We're just sort of, sort of mopping up. Well, unfortunately, no. The year I was born, there were 2.9 billion people in the world. Today, there are 7.6 billion people in the world. That's a huge jump in population just in my lifetime. As I said, there's about 11,000 people groups, and of those, 6,000, slightly over half, are what we would label as unreached with the gospel. Those 6,000 make up over 3 billion people in population. That means that there are more people in the world today in unreached people groups than there were people in the world the year I was born. And it just keeps growing because by and large, those are some of the peoples that are expanding the greatest. For the most part, this won't be a surprise to you, those people live in places where missionaries largely can't go as missionaries. And so a lot of it is in what we call the 1040 window, 10th parallel to 40th parallel from the Atlantic coast of North Africa over to the Pacific. And so that would include North Africa, the Middle East, Central Asia, South Asia, East Asia, and Southeast Asia. That's where most of the unreached peoples of the world live. And what it means to be unreached is that those people will be born, grow up, live, and die without ever meeting a Christian, <coughs> without ever reading a Bible, 
without ever once hearing the gospel, without ever once hearing the only message that can save anyone from the judgment that we all deserve because of our sin. That's why the command is to go. Go and make disciples of all nations. <coughs> if we just stay where we are, those people will never hear the good news. By and large, the greatest concentration of Christians are right here in North America. The greatest concentration of Christian workers are right here in North America. This is the most gospel-rich, gospel-saturated place on the planet. And we have far, far, far more resources at our disposal than anywhere else in the world. But we only make up about 7% of the world's population. And that's why the command is there to go. So yes, we need to share the gospel with people here. Absolutely. That's why churches are here. The purpose of churches is to be gospel outposts, sharing the gospel with those who are around them. But if we just keep sharing with those around us, most of the world will never hear. Well, if, so then if, if the authority for missions is the sovereign lordship of Jesus, if the task of missions is to make disciples, if the scope of missions is all the people groups of the earth, how do we do it? What's the power for missions? And Jesus closes with a very clear answer to that question as well. He said, I am with you always to the end of the age. Because, I mean, if you think about it, put yourself in the, in the, in the feet of the disciples. Now, there's 11 of them at this point. Now, there's some other followers who don't happen to be there, but they only come to a little over 100. And Jesus has just told them, uh, I want you to go evangelize the world. And you can just sort of see them going, right, how are we going to do that, Jesus? And he gives the answer in Scripture that is always his answer to that question. And he says, I'm with you. That's what you need. You know, think back to Moses. Moses was told to go back to a place where he was a wanted man and confront the most powerful king on earth and tell him to let his slaves who were working for him and doing all of his building projects to go. And Moses understandably asked the question, who am I? A question that God never answered because it was the wrong question. Um, if, if, if God had been a modern uh, pop psychologist, he would have proceeded to give uh, Moses a pep talk to boost his self-esteem and say, you got this. You know, just, just believe in yourself. It's awful advice. Um, instead, God says, it doesn't matter who you are. I'll be with you. And that means it'll succeed because all power in heaven and on earth has been given to him. And so it is the presence of Jesus that gives us the ability along with the authority to do what he's called on us to do. So that's the Great Commission. That's the command we've been given. Make disciples of all nations because Jesus is Lord, resting in the power of his Spirit. What does that mean for this church here in Mount Washington in 2021? Well, first of all, I would encourage you to, to be a learner. It may not be where you thought I would start, I would encourage you to be a learner. And I would encourage you specifically to learn God's Word and about God's world. Learn God's Word because literally I could preach a mission sermon from almost any page in the Bible. Because this has been God's theme literally from Genesis all the way through to Revelation. It is everywhere. It is all through it. This is what God is up to. Um, 
It's always fun to, to read people give historical analysis about the meaning of the age and just sort of smile and realize you don't have a clue. The meaning of the age is that God is building his church. That's the meaning of the age. That's the meaning of history right now, is that God is calling a people to himself from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. He is assembling a choir, an awesome choir, in which every people, group, and language will be represented to sing his praises. I actually heard my graduation speaker from seminary said the purpose of missions is to recruit for the choir, and I think it's true. Um, and so if you can't sing now, you will then. Um, because, and it's going to be gorgeous. But that's what, we're, that's what we're called on to do right now, and every page of Scripture testifies to that. So get to know God's Word, and as you do so, look out for that theme, the theme of the nations, how God is passionate about getting His good news to every corner of this planet. But also get to know God's world. Uh, it, as, as someone who's lived most of his adult life outside the United States, it's kind of embarrassing how little Americans know geography. Um, to say that we are geographically challenged would be really courteous to us, by and large. Um, my, uh, this, my son um, went, did his undergraduate work at Texas A&M University. He's in the Corps of Cadets. And um, he uh, had to identify where he was from. Well, he thought about saying Istanbul, Turkey, because that's where he spent most of his, his childhood, but decided that was kind of wimping out. He'd use the place where he was born instead. So he told him, I'm from Abbottabad, Pakistan. And uh, the number of times he was asked at Texas A&M, now, what part of Texas is that? <laughs> was, uh, was both amusing and embarrassing. Uh, you know, we, we would tell people we were going to Uzbekistan. I had someone say, East Pakistan? What part of Africa is that in? Which is like doubly wrong. It's, it's just, it's incredible. Uh, the, the point is that we tend to be rather insular, and we don't know much about the rest of the world. God has a heart for the world. Jesus shed his blood for the nations, for all the nations. And we need to have the same heart that our God does. And I think this would go a long way to, to helping cure the apathy toward missions that I find in far too many churches within our denomination. Put a map of the world up on your wall. I challenge all of you. Have a map of the world, a recent map of the world, up on your, your wall. And the way you can tell if it's adequately recent is if it shows South Sudan as a separate country from Sudan. Uh, if, it's, if it doesn't, then it's too old. Uh, put it up there and start studying it. And also get some real-world news. Now, real-world news necessarily means that you will not look at any American news sources. All right, They're all terrible. I don't like any of them. Um, I actually, my, my default is BBC World News Service. Um, I also am quite fond of Al Jazeera, English language service. Yes, it's a Middle Eastern news source, and it's really interesting to read that and get that perspective on what's going on in the world. But get to know what's happening around the world. And as you do, that's going to lead me directly into my next point. After you learn, turn what you learn into prayer. Pray. Because if something's going on in the world, it's almost certain that that something is having an impact on your brothers and sisters in Christ and may very well be having an impact on people who are trying to take the gospel somewhere. There's a flood somewhere. There's an earthquake somewhere. Probably at the IMB, we are scrambling in, in our crisis action room uh, to take care of people who are affected by that. There's a civil war somewhere. And who knows what impact that might have on the spread of the gospel. Always turn what you learn into fuel for prayer. 
And to go beyond just praying for the news, then also look at other news sources. The, the International Mission Board has a website, imb.org, and you can do imb.org slash pray and get more prayer resources than you'll know what to do with. Uh, lots of stuff, different prayer calendars, ways that you can be engaged in prayer on a regular basis. And we're not just saying we want prayer because it's the pious thing to do. We genuinely believe that the power of prayer is what moves missions forward. Uh, there is a, a group, I'm not sure whether your church has this group now or not, you probably did in the past if you don't have it now, called Women's Missionary Union. And WMU historically has always printed a prayer calendar that includes the names of all IMB and North American Mission Board workers on their birthday. For some people, if you're in a particularly sensitive area, it may just be your first name. If you're in a sensitive area and you have a really unusual first name like, like I do, uh, I just showed up as Z on, on my birthday. But the fact is that we knew that on our birthday, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of godly women around the United States were praying for us, and we felt invincible. People would intentionally schedule some of the riskiest, most daring, most, most bold things they were going to do for their birthday, just knowing that they were being supported by the prayers of so many people on that day. Uh, in one Central Asian country uh, that is very, very, very unreached, um, one of their people groups was featured as the people group for everyone to pray for on Pentecost weekend, and this was across the evangelical world. And we can date the incredible turning to Christ that has occurred among that people group to that day. Prayer does stuff. We don't understand it. We, 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 we cannot figure out the mystery of prayer, how our talking to the sovereign God of the universe who already knows everything that's ever going to happen somehow is a tool in His hands to do what He's doing. But that's what it is. It's a tool in His hands that He uses. And the prayers of the saints have an incredible impact. You can affect world history right here on your knees in prayer. And I encourage you to do that. The third thing that you can do after you learn and you pray is to give. First of all, I just want to thank you. You're, you're a church that cooperates through the cooperative program and gives to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering, and that is phenomenal. And I personally owe you a, a debt of gratitude and will for the rest of my life for your support of that. I was able to go where I went because of the support of churches like yours. And it is true that we just had the biggest giving year of our history. And we are extremely excited about that. That's the good news. The bad news is that the increase in giving that we have experienced over the last 20 years has never kept up with inflation. And that's why we have continued to struggle as we have in terms of being able to not only support the missionaries we've got, but increase the force. So our goal right now, this was a goal that we were led to create by our president, who used to stand right here, is that we want to have a net increase of 500 missionaries by the year 2025. That won't even come close to meeting the needs around the world of places where the gospel's never been before, but it'll be a good step. But in order to do that, our budget has to increase by 6% every year. And we're not even close to that right now. So I would simply encourage you not only to continue giving as you have, but to see it as a new priority. Uh, what we have done, and by the way, all, uh, pretty much all missionaries themselves give to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. We believe in it that much. 
But um, what, what we have done as a family is we have looked to see what's the most we spent on any one person at Christmas, and then we've made sure that our Lottie Moon Christmas offering was more than that. So we kind of figure, yeah, it's, it's Jesus' birthday. Why does he get the smallest present, you know? So we make sure that we always give the most to the advance of the gospel at Christmas time through the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. So again, though, thank you. Thank you for what you're doing to support us in that way. The fourth thing I would encourage you to do is to be a sending church. And I know you guys are already moving. You're, you're already there. Uh, but I'm asking you to send your best. I'm asking you to send your children and your grandchildren. Um, when, uh, when God called me to the ministry, my mother, who had led me to the Lord, was very excited. And, and four years later, when I told her that that meant that I was going to be a missionary, her response was, that's not fair. It's the one thing that as a mother I don't like, but as a Christian I can't object to. And she was absolutely right. She became our, one of our greatest and most enthusiastic supporters. But we have had plenty of people who have told us that it's been their Christian parents and grandparents who've tried to hold them back, who've tried to keep them from going. Don't be those people. Be those who get excited when your kids and your grandkids take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Be those, in fact, who encourage your kids and your grandkids to go to the ends of the earth. Be the kind of church that actively encourages people in your midst to consider whether or not you should be the one to take the gospel where it's never been heard before. Because we shouldn't just react to people who on their own get a call to missions. The church should be a missionary factory that produces missionaries and sends them out to the ends of the earth. And by the way, the kind of people that we want you to, to send may surprise you. Yes, we want preachers. Yes, we want people with seminary education. We need a few of those. By and large, hate to say it, but those of us with strong seminary and theological training aren't really useful on the mission field. Sorry. Um, the, the problem is that most places we need to send missionaries won't let people like us in. Now, we managed to find a way in to some pretty strange places, but it was never using what I actually studied in school. What we need are people with strong professional credentials that will get them into a country who are also solid disciples of Jesus who know how to disciple others. And so we need and can use medical workers of every sort, doctors, nurses, PAs, lab techs, any, anyone like that, dentists, all of that, easy to place. We also can easily place engineers of any sort, scientists of pretty much any sort, teachers of pretty much any sort. We actually even managed to, to place some lawyers. Even lawyers can be used as missionaries. Believe it or not, it, it can happen. We can use business people to set up for-profit businesses that allow people to be in a country that otherwise would not be able to be there. Business people of every kind, accountants, all folks like that. We can use sports coaches. One of my favorite things that I got to do was to coach the sport of American football. And that got me in a country and gave me a great set of relationships with people. We had someone else who was actually a pole vaulter who helped train a very small country's national Olympic pole vaulting team. But those are the kinds of people that we can use. And by the way, we can certainly use young people, but we can also use older people. 
I was just mentioning earlier this morning, most societies in the world are more biblical than the United States is in terms of attitude toward age. America somehow thinks that it's an accomplishment to be young. There's no accomplishment to being young. You just are. It's an accomplishment to survive this long, okay? And most societies realize that that is true. Um, I mean, gray hair is a crown of glory. It is attained by a righteous life. It doesn't have to be a crown. It can be a chin strap of glory. Um, but I can tell you, this used to be bright red. And when it turned white, I could get away with so much more in terms of evangelism, in terms of boldness with the gospel than I ever could in the past because almost all the cultures we're trying to reach have built into their culture a sense of respect for age. And yes, it is true that as we get older, there is a little more wrong with our bodies. It is also true that as we get older, learning a language gets harder. But what we've seen is that a loving older person, given the cultural position that they hold, can get away with so much and can be so useful. So yes, we can use young adults, we can also use retirees. What we mostly can use, though, what we really need are disciples. Because you can't give away something you don't, you, you don't have. We need people who are disciples who know how to make disciples of others. And if you have a skill you can use on top of that to get yourself in somewhere, then that's all the better. But what that means, though, if you're, if you're going to be ascending church, that means that the challenge to many of you must be to go. And I, I want to end with these words. Let's flip the question. Usually people ask the question, why should I go to the nations? Well, there's a clear command from Jesus that answers that question. And so the question has to be, why shouldn't I? The question has to be, given the vastness of the need, why should I stay where I'm needed less, or there are more people to do the work here, rather than go where the need is greater and there is no one to do the work. And so if God at all prompts your heart in that direction, then the default should be, I go, unless God makes it clear that I should stay. And so I want to challenge each person in this room to do this today. I want to challenge you to go home, get before God, and say, why shouldn't I be the one to take the good news where it's never been before? Now, if there is anyone here for whom this whole talk about the gospel is just strange, and you don't know what we're talking about, uh, this, is what we, this is what we mean when we say this. The God who created the universe is a holy God who hates evil and sin in every form. Amazingly enough, He is also a loving God who looks at people like us and loves us and desires to redeem us. We as a people, all of us, every one of us, is a rebel against that God. Every one of us has done that which is offensive to God and justly merits His condemnation. But God had mercy on us and became a man in the person of Jesus to live the life we should have lived and then die the death we deserve to die, taking on himself the punishment that our sins deserve. He rose again from the dead as the victor over sin and death and hell, and now he extends the gracious invitation and command that everyone everywhere should repent of their sins and put their trust in him. And if you have never done that, then today is the best possible day for you to do so. But there's the invitation. The invitation is to, to repent of your sins and put your faith in Jesus. The invitation is there if you, are never, if you are not a member of a local church to join your life with this one. The invitation is there for those of you who are disciples of Jesus 
to accept the call to make disciples where he's not known. Let's pray. Father, we bless you that you loved us enough to come and redeem us. We bless you, Father, that you so arranged history that the gospel got to us. Thank you for the faithful transmission through millennia. Thank you for that one person who took the last step toward us and told us about the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that the good news of Jesus would not end with any of us, but it would keep going not only to our neighbors, but to the ends of the earth. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast. I'm Pastor Jason Clark, and if you don't have a church home, I want to personally invite you to First Baptist Mount Washington. We're striving to be word-centered, gospel-focused, and community-minded. Learn more about our church and our meeting times from our website, fbcmw.org.